Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Will. And I'm Sabrina. And today we are thrilled to have Karen Donfried with us. Karen is president of the German Marshall Fund of the U.S., a nonprofit dedicated to strengthening transatlantic cooperation. She has served as the National Intelligence Officer for Europe on the National Intelligence Council, a member of the Secretary of State's Foreign Affairs Policy Board, Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for European Affairs on the National Security Council. She is also a member of the Board of Trustees of Wesleyan University, her undergraduate alma mater. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. To get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a moment in their personal or professional life that they had to change direction. Could you share a moment with us? I think probably all of our lives are made up of inflection points, and it's hard to say that I mapped out either my career or my personal trajectory, but let me just take one. So I made a decision that I was going to do a PhD, and I think probably the only reason to do a PhD in political science is if you want to teach. And so I imagine myself teaching, actually, probably at a smart liberal arts college like Claremont McKenna or like my alma mater, Wesleyan University, and then... As I was in the final throes of my dissertation, I was at a conference and happened to sit next to someone who worked at the Congressional Research Service. And he said, oh, you're writing a dissertation on Germany. We're looking to hire a Germany analyst. Might you be interested in that? Because I'm happy to send you the application. And I thought, well, what's the harm? I'll apply for this job. And then I was offered the job. And I was supposed to do a postdoc and turn my dissertation into a book and then teach. And I decided actually that a paid job sounded like a really good thing. <laughs> and so I ended up going to work for the Congressional Research Service. And in many ways, that was the first step to then a professional career in Washington. So how did you find transitioning into a political office job from like a policy research kind of job? So I worked at the Congressional Research Service for 10 years, which by any measure is a long time, except if you work at the Congressional Research Service, because nobody ever leaves. So I had been there 10 years, and I was still one of the most junior people there. Most people stay their whole career. So a lot of my colleagues had been there 30 years. And I had been offered various jobs, but was quite happy, actually, at, at CRS. It's the acronym. And then I was offered a job at the German Marshall Fund. And that was then the job I accepted. And that was such a great experience because the German Marshall Fund works on strengthening transatlantic cooperation. And I was a European analyst at CRS. So it made a lot of sense to make that sort of a transition. But I'd never worked for a nonprofit before. And I relished the opportunity to have a role in deciding what I worked on. So at, at GMF, you do have a lot of latitude in terms of what's the programming you want to do that you think is relevant to this relationship between the U.S. and Europe, whereas at CRS, much of the role is reactive because you're working for members of Congress, you're working for congressional staff, and they're setting that agenda. And so when I went to GMF, I thought, gosh, I'm never going to stay anyplace 10 years again because there are too many interesting things that one can do. And lo and behold, I had been at 
GMF less than two years, and I had this opportunity to go work at the State Department on the policy planning staff. Now, that was not technically a political role. I was a Schedule B, which is when they hire an outside expert to work on a particular topic. So I went to work on the policy planning staff as a European expert, though, of course, I was then in a policy role at state. I then went back to the German Marshall Fund. I then went into government. I was the national intelligence officer for Europe, so that was working in the intelligence community. And then I went to the National Security Council and was President Obama, Obama's senior advisor on Europe. And I'm one of those rare Americans who has worked in administrations of different parties. Because when I worked at the State Department, I was working for President Bush, and then I worked in the Obama administration. And I suppose that suggests that I have perhaps a quaint notion that we should be pursuing a bipartisan foreign policy in this country. I personally think that there are something called American interests, and they start at the water's edge. And I don't know if we'll ever get back to that in my lifetime, but it's certainly something I feel strongly about and, and hope to contribute to, whether from a nonprofit role or through public service. In your experience in the nonprofit world and also in the more apolitical sides of our government, like the Congressional Research Service and the intelligence community, is that kind of entrenched partisanship that affects most of Washington something that guides people's work as well? Or have you found that's been limited to only your experiences in the White House and places like that? So I have to say, in the roles I have served in in government, I have not felt that the policies I were working on were informed by partisanship. So at CRS, obviously, we're working for members of both parties. And a lot of people find reading a CRS report very frustrating because you'll read some argue, others maintain. So you feel very directly that this report is being written for folks of different political persuasions. When I was at the State Department, there I first was working for Secretary of State Colin Powell and then for Secretary of State Condi Rice. And the U.S. relationship with Europe was very fraught in that period because the Bush administration had made the decision to fight the Iraq War. And most of our European allies did not feel that that was the right policy decision at the time. So that was quite fraught. But I will say that Colin Powell believed deeply in the importance of the relationship with Europe. And then in the second Bush term, both President Bush and Secretary of State Rice were committed to trying to rebuild that relationship. So that was a particular period of history. Then when I worked in the intelligence community, that was a new experience for me because the intelligence community tends to be quite isolated. And I was sort of a rare creature for them because I had so many European contacts and I traveled very extensively. And I tried to infuse my part of the intelligence community with some of those connections. And that was really interesting for me both to learn how they did their analysis and for me to share some of my contacts with them. And that was a difficult period because of the financial crisis, because of the Eurozone crisis in Europe and the implications that that, that, that had for U.S. policy. And then when I moved to the National Security Council, 
there were various challenges. The first was the Snowden disclosures. So we'll remember that Edward Snowden released a lot of classified material that was very upsetting to some of our European allies because they were concerned about the collection the U.S. was doing on Europe. Notably Germany. And it was particularly sensitive in Germany because the Snowden disclosures, to, to be a bit sarcastic, were the gift that kept on giving. So the first chapter was about metadata collection, where we argued we were collecting this data to help us in the fight against terrorism. And then sort of the next chapter was disclosures that reportedly the U.S. had been tapping Chancellor Merkel's cell phone. And so the Germans who had been defending the metadata collection said, wait a minute, you think our chancellor is a terrorist? Why would you possibly be tapping her cell phone? And it just sort of went from bad to worse. And that was a very challenging period, particularly, as you say, in the U.S.-German relationship, also in the relationship with the European Union, because Brussels was quite concerned about the collection, and the European Parliament was another hotbed of concern about what the U.S. intelligence services were doing. But then there also was the question about our policy on Syria. And President Obama drew a red line saying that if the Syrians were to use chemical weapons, the U.S. would intervene militarily. At the end of the day, the U.S. chose not to do that and worked with the Russians to get those chemical weapons out of Syria. And then we had war on the European continent with Russia's illegal annexation of Ukraine's sovereign territory, Crimea. And that set off a very strong cooperation between the U.S. and Europe, specifically Germany, to put in place sanctions on Russia. So there were really interesting chapters uh, in terms of the U.S.-European relationship in those different periods that I worked in government. And on many of those, like policy towards Russia after the annexation of Crimea, there was strong bipartisan support in the U.S. for the policies that we pursued. It's clear that your whole career and your education path was always steeped in politics. Have you always known that you wanted to go into this field? I always knew that I wanted to work on U.S.-European cooperation. I didn't know exactly what form that would take. And initially, I did see myself pursuing more of an academic path, and I will say that my father is a college professor, so no doubt it, ha it hangs with that, um, that I had that initial inclination. But I have to say, I have found public service incredibly meaningful. So I have found it very rewarding to work for the U.S. government. I hope I've made a small contribution. I know I have learned immensely from those different jobs that I've had. I also have found it really meaningful to work for a nonprofit. And I think the connection between government service and a nonprofit is that they're both mission-driven. And that's something that's very appealing to me. I'm curious whether uh, the reasons that you've expressed in the past for your interest being particularly in Germany, experiences you've talked about of going to East Germany and interacting with uh, repressed religious leaders uh, in that country when it still existed, are still what drive your interest in the country now that the human rights situation is so different and whether you find yourself 
evolving along with the country and the reasons that you're interested in studying it? So my initial interest in Germany was very much a personal one. My father's a theologian. And when I was little, <laughs> I as a newborn until four, we actually lived in Germany because my father was doing his doctorate in Heidelberg. And we came back to the U.S. And at that time, I spoke fluent German. And I started kindergarten and kids teased me about my accent in English. And I had to go to speech therapy and I vowed never to speak German again, which I pretty successfully did until I was in junior high school. And I happened to go to a junior high school in Amherst, Massachusetts, where you could take German. So I started taking German again. And my accent was pretty good. My grammar was pretty atrocious. But I then went to college and was interested in government, political science. And I went to college during the Cold War. So I graduated from college in 1984. And Germany was very interesting then because it was the border in Cold War Europe. So I had this intellectual interest in Germany as this border country. And then in graduate school, in the final throes of my dissertation, the Cold War ended. The Berlin Wall fell. And I thought, oh, no, my dissertation has gone from being a political science dissertation to a history dissertation overnight. How did this happen? But for me, that was the amazing historic development, I think, in my life, that this Cold War that had been seemingly permanent as I grew up ended. And who had foreseen that? Very few people. And so then my interest in Germany and Europe was how does this country, how does this continent develop in a different way not having the shadow of the Soviet threat. And that's been my interest in the ensuing decades since the end of the Cold War. So you brought up the topic about your dissertation during your um, academic career. Um, we read that it was about the political economy of the U.S. and West Germany when the wall fell. And you've mentioned that you had to revise it because of what you've just mentioned. Um, I'm curious to know what was the final conclusion of your paper and how would you revise it again with the current situation of U.S. and Germany relations? So my dissertation was very political science wonky, and it looked at this idea of issue linkage. So West Germany at the end of World War II was dependent on the United States for its security. And I looked at three case studies where the United States tried to use the leverage of that security dependence to get economic benefits from its West German ally. So I looked at three case studies, and basically my conclusion was this was not a successful policy <laughs> because what would happen is – take one of my case studies. The U.S. suffered from a balance of payments deficit with West Germany after World War II. And so the U.S. government at the time had this idea that Germany should offset that balance of payments deficit. This terrified the West Germans. The then chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, said, if we make payments to the United States, it will look like occupation costs. And the United States is our ally. It's not our occupier. So the West Germans did some quick thinking and said, ah, 
how about this? How about we agree to buy all of the weapons for the West German army from you, the United States? So they won't be payments, but we'll be purchasing these weapons from you. So there was a lot of back and forth and the U.S. agreed to this. Well, that has a very different impact on the U.S. economy than if you actually just pay money. So it didn't have the impact that the U.S. was looking for. It was much more sellable for the Germans. But my question would have been, from whom else were the West Germans going to buy weapons? They were going to buy weapons from the U.S. in that post-war period anyway. So in each of the case studies, you saw this sort of a dynamic where the U.S. thinks, oh, we have such a bright idea. We'll get this economic benefit from the West Germans. But it's complicated. And you end up with a different result that doesn't actually fulfill your initial aim. So when you think about, well, what does that mean for today? Today, the United Germany is in a very different position. On the one hand, largest economy, most populous country in the European Union, you've had a successful process of European integration over 70 years that also has lessened German dependence on the U.S., but nonetheless, Angela Merkel, Germany's chancellor, would be the first to admit that Germany still needs the United States in 2018. And this is why we're in such a fraught period in the U.S.-German and U.S.-European relationship, because the Germans and our European allies all believe that the order they built with the U.S. after World War II, this order based on liberal democracy, free market economy, rule of law, rights of the individual, is still very important to them and serves their interests. And they feel that the United States has elected a president in Donald Trump who has a very different view of what that world order should be and looks at our European allies and feels that they've taken advantage of us over time and that the U.S. has gotten a bad deal. So he's trying to renegotiate this relationship with Europe in a way that's deeply concerning to Germany and our other European allies. So it's a really complicated moment in that relationship. And so our the last question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your personal definition of success? And how would you help students define success for themselves? I think the way you phrase the question is great because I think each of us will define success in a different way. And I feel very lucky to have had a professional career that has been meaningful to me and which I've really enjoyed. And I say I feel lucky in that because at the end of the day, it's called work for a reason. There's always going to be some part of your job you don't like. And what happens when you're starting out your career is there's more of your job you probably don't like because you're junior and other people are going to be giving you stuff to do they don't like. And you can learn through that what is it you most enjoy spending your time on. And then you try to maximize that stuff you like spending your time on throughout your career. So hopefully when you're where I am in my career, you're mostly doing stuff you enjoy. But for me, my greatest satisfaction isn't actually my work. It's my personal life. So for me, it's been really important to have time 
to be married and raise two children. And that also gives me tremendous joy. And I think for each of us, it's finding what the right balance is. What is the space you want to have for your personal life? And what's the time you want to devote to your professional career? So I think it's about finding the balance between your personal satisfaction and your professional issues. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, Karen. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.